Alright, come back. Um, biology and behavior, part two. Okay, so we're gonna dive right into parts of the forebrain. Um, as I was saying in the last episode, the forebrain is the most modern portion of the brain. Um, and in humans, it forms the largest portion of the brain by weight and volume. So she's big. Um, the forebrain contained regions derived from the diencephalon, including the thalamus, hypothalamus, posterior pituitary, and pineal gland, and it also includes um, parts of the telencephalon, including the cerebral cortex, basal ganglia, and limbic system. So the thalamus, first and foremost, the thalamus is a relay station for incoming sensory information, including every sense except for smell. Um, after receiving an incoming sensory impulse, the thalamus will sort and transmit it to the appropriate areas of the cerebral cortex. So it's like a way station. Then we have the hypothalamus, um, which is subdivided into the lateral, ventromedial, and anterior hypothalamus, and it works as a homeostatic function. Um, it works in emotional experiences during high arousal states, aggressive behavioral, and sexual behavior. It helps control some endocrine functions as well as the autonomic nervous system. And it serves many homeostatic functions, which are self-regulatory processes that maintain a stable balance within the body. Um, so the receptors in the hypothalamus regulate metabolism, temperature, and water balance. And when any of these are out of balance, the hypothalamus will detect it and signal the body to correct it. So, like, osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus may trigger the release of antidiuretic hormone, which will increase water reabsorption as part of fluid balance. And it also is the primary regulator of the autonomic nervous system and is important in drive behaviors, which are hunger, thirst, and sexual behavior. So... Yeah, you can think of the functions of the hypothalamus as the four Fs. So feeding, fighting, flighting, and sexual, in parentheses, functioning. Um, okay, so specific parts of the hypothalamus, we have the lateral hypothalamus. Um, it's the hunger center because it has special receptors that detect when the body needs more food or fluids, and it triggers eating and drinking, and when it's in destroyed in lab rats, it they will refuse to eat and drink and would starve to death. Um, so lateral hypothalamus, when destroyed, lacks hunger, so LH, LH. The ventral medial hypothalamus is the satiety center and provides signals to stop eating. Um, any brain lesions here lead to obesity. So when the ventral medial hypothalamus, the VMH, is destroyed, one is very much hungry. So VMH, VMH. Then we've got the anterior hypothalamus, which controls sexual behavior. Um, when it's simulated, lab animals will mount anything. And damage to this will lead to permanent inhibition of sexual activity. It also will regulate sleep and body temperature. Um, let's look here. So we also have the posterior pituitary, which has axonal projections from the hypothalamus and is the site of release for the hypothalamic hormones, uh, antidiuretic hormone, ADH, aka vasopressin, and oxytocin, and we'll go over the functions of those later on. We have the pineal gland, which is a key player in biological rhythms, 
Um, so it secretes melatonin, which we know of, that regulates circadian rhythms, helps us sleep. Um, it also receives direct signals from the retina for coordination with sunlight. Then we've got basal ganglia in the middle of the brain. They coordinate muscle movement as they receive information from the cortex and relay this information via the extrapyramidal nervous system to the brain and the spinal cord. This extrapyramidal system will gather information about the body position and carry it to the central nervous system, but it doesn't function directly through motor neurons. So the basal ganglia help make our movements smooth and our posture steady. Um, you'll note that Parkinson's disease is one chronic illnesses illness associated with the damage or destruction of portions of the basal ganglia. Um, it's characterized by like a jerky movement or uncontrolled resting tremors. Um, the basal ganglia also can play a role in schizophrenia and obsessive compulsive disorder. Next we've got the limbic system which comprises a group of interconnected structures looping around the central portion of the brain and is primarily associated with emotion and memory. Um, it has the septal nuclei, amygdala, hippocampus, and anterior cingulate cortex. So we'll go over the roles of those later on. Um, the septal nuclei has one of the primary pleasure centers in the brain, so mild stimulation can be intensely pleasurable. There's an association between these nuclei and addictive behavior, scary. The amygdala is a structure that plays an important role in defensive and aggressive behaviors, including fear and rage. Um, when the amygdala is damaged, aggressive and fear reactions are markedly reduced, and lesions to the amygdala can reduce in, can result in docility and hypersexual states. The hippocampus plays a vital role in learning and memory processes. Specifically, it helps consolidate information in, to form long-term memories and can redistribute remote memories to the cerebral cortex. The hippocampus communicates with other portions of the limbic system through a long production called the fornix. Um, researchers discovered this connection between memory and the hippocampus through Henry Malaisen, also known as HM. Um, Part of HM's temporal lobes, including the amygdala and hippocampus, were removed to control epileptic seizures, and then after surgery, their intelligence was largely intact, but he suffered a drastic and irreversible loss of memory for any new operation, also known as anterograde amnesia, characterized by not being able to establish new long-term memories, whereas memories for events that occurred before brain injury were intact. And then we have the opposite kind of memory loss, retrograde amnesia is memory loss of events that transpired before the brain injury and we'll go more into learning and memory later on um, then we have the anterior cingulate cortex um, which is connected to the frontal and parietal lobes and it works because of that it works in higher order cognitive processes like regulating impulse control and decision making it also maintains connections to other parts of the limbic system and plays a role in emotion and motivation all right, so then we've got the outer surface of the brain, also known as the cerebral cortex. So it's sometimes called the neocortex. Um, it's the most recent brain region to evolve. The cortex has numerous bumps and folds called gyri and sulci, respectively. The structure of the brain provides increased surface area. Um, and then the cerebrum is divided into two halves, which are cerebral hemispheres. And the surface of the cortex is divided into four lobes, so F-pot frontal, parietal, occipital, and temporal. These 
are associated with specific functions. So the frontal lobe is got two basic regions, the prefrontal cortex and the motor cortex. Prefrontal cortex manages executive function by supervising and directing the operations of other brain regions to regulate attention and alertness. The prefrontal cortex communicates with the reticular formation in the brainstem, telling an individual either to wake up or to relax, depending on the situation. This region also supervises processes associated with perception, memory, emotion, impulse control, and long-term planning. So in memory, for example, the role of the prefrontal cortex is not to store any memory traces, but to remind the individual that he or she has something to remember at all. Um, damage to the prefrontal cortex impairs its supervisory function, so they might be more impulsive or less in control of their behavior. Um, and they can have an increased tendency towards angry outbursts or crying, and they could make vulgar and inappropriate sexual remarks or just be apathetic to the emotional response of someone else. Um, because the prefrontal cortex integrates information from different cortical regions, the prefrontal cortex is a good example of an association area, which is an area that integrates input from diverse regions of the brain. So multiple inputs might be necessary to solve a complex puzzle, to plan ahead for the future, or to reach a difficult decision. Um, and then association areas are contrasted with production areas, which perform more rudimentary perceptual and motor tasks. So like the primary motor cortex is a projection area, which is located on the precentral gyrus, just in front of the central sulcus that divides the frontal and parietal lobes. The function of the primary motor cortex is to initiate voluntary motor movements by sending neural impulses down the spinal cord toward the muscles. As such, it is considered a projection area in the brain the, the neurons are arranged systematically according to parts of the body to which they are connected, and this organizational pattern can be visualized through the motor homunculus. Um, and because certain sets of muscles require final muscle control, finer motor control than others, they take up additional space in the cortex relative to the size in the body. And then a third important part of the frontal lobe is Broca's area, which is important for speech production. It's found in only one hemisphere, the so-called dominant hemisphere for most people, both right and left-handed, which is the left hemisphere. So that's for frontal lobe. Now we are going to go on to parietal lobe. It's the rear, oops, rear to the, located to the rear of the frontal lobe. Um, the somatosensory cortex is located on the postcentral gyrus, just behind the central sulcus, and is involved in somatosensory information processing. This production area is the destination for all incoming sensory signals for touch, pressure, temperature, and pain. Um, the somatosensory cortex and motor cortex are pretty closely related, so they sometimes are described as a single unit, the sensory motor cortex. The central region of the parietal lobe is associated with spatial processing and manipulation, and it makes it possible to orient oneself and other objects in 3D space and to do spatial manipulation of objects and to apply spatial orientation skills, so like how to read a map. Then we've got the occipital lobe at the very rear of the brain containing the visual cortex, which is sometimes also known as the striate cortex. Striate means like furrowed or striped, which is how the visual cortex appears when you look at it under a microscope. Um, it's got one of the best understood brain regions. and We'll go over that. Um, then we've got the temporal lobes, which has the auditory cortex in Wernicke's area. Auditory cortex is the primary site of most sound processing, including speech, music, and other sound information, and then Wernicke's area is associated with language perception and comprehension. 
The temporal lobe also works in memory processing, emotion, and language. So electrical stimulation has once shown that temporal lobe can evoke memories for past events, which makes sense because the hippocampus is deep inside the temporal lobe. Um, and the lobes are also not truly independent of one another, so sensory modalities can be represented in more than one area. Um, Alright, then we've got our cerebral hemispheres and laterality. Um, so one side of the brain can communicate with the opposite side of the body, um, which is known as contralateral. And then we've got, that's like for movements, motor neurons and movements, and then for hearing, we have the cerebral hemispheres communicating with the same side of the body, which is ipsilaterally. So dominant hemisphere is typically defined as the one that is more heavily stimulated during language perception and production. So sometimes people used hand dominance as a proxy for hemispheric dominance. So right-handed individuals were assumed to have left dominant brains and vice versa, but this did not work. Um, the dominant hemisphere is usually the left and is analytic in function, making it well suited for managing details. So like language, logic, math skills, um, language production and language comprehensive. Broca's and Wernicke's area respectively are driven by the dominant hemisphere. Then we've got the non-dominant hemisphere, which is usually the right, which is intuition, creativity, music, cognition, and spatial processing. The non-dominant hemisphere simultaneously processes the pieces of a stimulus and assemble them into a holistic image. And it's got a less prominent role in language. It's more sensitive to the emotional tone and helps us recognize moods with visual and auditory cues and adds to communication. Um, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So now we're going to go into influences on behavior. So chemical controls, neurotransmitters, hormones in the endocrine system, heredity, and the environment. So starting off with neurotransmitters. What is it? It's a chemical used by neurons to send signals to other neurons, and there have been over 100 identified. Um, some drugs can mimic the action of neurotransmitters by binding to the same receptor to produce the same biological response. Um, something that mimics the action is an agonist, and the blocking the action of a neurotransmitter is an antagonist. So acetylcholine, to start off, is a neurotransmitter found in both the CNS and PNS. Um, in the PNS, the acetylcholine is used to transmit nerve impulses to the muscles. It is used by the parasympathetic nervous system in a small portion of the sympathetic ganglia and for innervating sweat, sweat glands. In the CNS, acetylcholine has been linked to attention and arousal, and in fact, loss of cholinergic neurons connecting with the hippocampus is associated with Alzheimer's. Um, which leads to progressive and incurable memory loss. We've then got epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine, which are catecholamines. They have similar molecular composition and can be classified as monoamines or biogenic amines. Um, they all play important roles in the experience of emotions. So epinephrine is adrenaline and norepinephrine is noradrenaline. They are controlling alertness and wakefulness. Um, they are the primary neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system. They promote the fight-or-flight response. Norepinephrine more commonly acts at a, a local level. Epinephrine is more often secreted from the adrenal medulla to act systematically as a hormone. Um, 
low levels of norepinephrine are associated with depressions and high levels can be associated with anxiety and mania. Then we've got dopamine. It's another catecholamine that plays an important role in movement and posture. So high concentrations are found in the basal ganglia, which helps smooth movements and maintain postural stability. Imbalances can play a role in schizophrenia. And there's an important theory about this, the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia, which argues that delusions, hallucinations, and agitation associated with schizophrenia arise from either too much dopamine or from an oversensitivity to dopamine in the brain. Um, it doesn't account for all findings of the disease, though, but it is important. Um, we've also got Parkinson's again. It's associated with a loss of dopaminergic neurons in the basal ganglia. These disruptions lead to resting tremors, jerky movements, and postural instability. We've also got serotonin, which is another monoamine biogenic immune neurotransmitter. It plays roles in regulating mood, eating, sleeping, dreaming. You've heard it a lot in pop culture. Um, it plays a role in depression and mania, and an oversupply can produce manic states, and undersupply is depression-inducing. Then we've got GABA, glycine, glutamate. So we've got gamma-aminobutyric acid, GABA, which produces inhibitory postsynaptic potentials and plays an important role in stabilizing neural activity. Um, it causes hyperpolarization in this postsynaptic membrane. Glycine one of the 20 proteinogenic amino acids, but also can serve as an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the CNS by increasing chloride influx into the neuron, and it hyperpolarizes the postsynaptic membrane, similar to GABA. And then we've got glutamate, another amino acid, and it acts as a neurotransmitter, um, but it's excitatory instead of inhibitory, unlike glycine. Then we've got peptide neurotransmitters, um, these are neuromodulators, or neuropeptides, and they're more complicated. Um, they're slower and have longer effects. They've got endorphins, which are natural painkillers. Um, and then we've got their relatives, enkephalins, which have similar actions to, like, morphines or opioids in the body. Um, yeah, and we can move on. I'll do a quick summary. So acetylcholine is related to voluntary muscle control, parasympathetic nervous system, attention, alertness. And then we've got epinephrine and norepinephrine, fight or flight responses, wakefulness, alertness. We've got dopamine, smooth movements, postural stability, serotonin, mood, sleep, eating, <laughs> dreaming, not depression. GABA and glycine are the brain stabilization neurotransmitters, and then we've got glutamate, which is the brain excitation. Endorphins are natural painkillers. Let's see if we can go kind of quickly through these last couple pages. Um, we've got the endocrine system is the other internal communication network in the body, and it uses chemical messengers called hormones. Um, it's somewhat slower because hormones travel to their target destination through the bloodstream. Um, the hypothalamus can link the endocrine and nervous system and regulates the hormonal function of the pituitary, pituitary gland. They're spatially close to each other, and the control is maintained through endocrine release of hormones into the hypophysial portal system that directly connects the two organs. So the pituitary gland is the master gland. It is located at the base of the brain and is divided into two parts, anterior and posterior. Anterior is the master because it releases hormones that regulate activities of endocrine glands elsewhere in the body. 
um, and it's controlled by the hypothalamus. The pituitary secretes various hormones to the bloodstream that travel to other endocrine glands located elsewhere in the body to activate them. And once activated by the pituitary, a given endocrine gland can manufacture and secrete its own hormone into the bloodstream. So, the adrenal glands, oh, maybe I should split this up again. Okay, the adrenal glands are located on top of the kidneys and are divided into two parts, the adrenal medulla and, and cortex. Medulla releases epinephrine and norepinephrine as part of the sympathetic nervous system. The adrenal cortex produces hormones called corticosteroids, including stress hormone cortisol, and it contributes to sexual functioning by producing sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen. Then we've got the gonads, the sex glands of the body, ovaries and females, testes and males. They produce sex hormones in higher concentration, leading to increased levels of testosterone in males and estrogen in females. And they increase libido and contribute to mating behavior and sexual function. Testosterone high levels also can increase aggressive behavior. Alright, so genetics and behavior. Ugh. We're doing rough on time. We're doing rough on time. Yeah, for sure. I'll have to split up the last one. Okay. So, behavioral states can behavioral traits can be inherited. Um, we've got innate behavior, which is genetically programmed as a result of evolution and seen in all individuals regardless of environment or experience. And then we've got learned behaviors, which are not based on heredity, but instead are based on experience and environment. We've got an adaptive value, which is the extent to which a trait or behavioral positively benefits a species by influencing the evolutionary fitness of the species, which leads to adaptation through natural selection. Um, how much a person's behavior is based on genetic makeup and how much is based on environment and experience, this is referred to as nature versus nurture. Nature is influence of inherited characteristics, nurture is the influence of environment and physical surroundings. So both both affect it. Um, and to determine the degree of genetic influences, we use three different methods, family, twin, or adoption studies. Family studies rely on the fact that genetically related individuals are more similar genotypically than unrelated, and they can compare rates of a given trait among family members to rates of the trait among unrelated individuals. And then... These family studies can be limited since families share both genetics and environment, um, so we can't really distinguish. We've got twin studies, which look at concordance rates for a trait between monozygotic, identical, and dizygotic, fraternal twins to distinguish the relative effects of shared environment and genetics. Concordance rate are the likelihood that both twins exhibit the same rate trait. Um, Genetically identical twins share 100% of their genes, and fraternal twins share 50%. Um, and the main assumption is that the two individuals share the same environment, so any differences are should reflect hereditary factors. Um, they can also be used to measure genetic effects relative to environmental effects. Um, so you can compare traits in twins raised together versus apart, and then... We've got adoption studies, which help us understand um, the similarities between biological relatives and adopted child, the similarities between adoptive relatives and adopted child. So, all right, let's, hmm, 
Yeah, I'll pause because development's a little bit packed, and then I'll do a brief summary after development. So, yeah, thanks for listening.